This is Monday Morning QB, January 3rd, 2022. I'm Askia Muhammad. Today on the show, we take a Monday morning look at the January 6th U.S. Capitol insurrection as that anniversary approaches this week. A freshman Congress member's lament about some of her colleagues who supported the insurrectionists. A new black internet portal has picked a fight with the industry giants. Original words and song from D.C.'s Gala Hispanic Theater. And the Texas immigration system is rife with civil rights violations against arrestees. All that and more. Stay with us. Almost a year ago, this country watched in horror as a flag-toting, MAGA hat-wearing, conspiracy-primed mob descended on and into the U.S. Capitol building, where they called on Donald Trump's congressional allies to stop the legitimate counting of electoral votes for president and threatened to hang lawmakers who opposed them. Many participants of the January 6th riot have since been criminally charged, and a congressionally authorized panel has lended legitimacy to investigations into the violence. But as Trump and his far-right supporters appear to have irredeemably convinced themselves that the 2020 election was stolen, the risk of future violence remains high. Can the republic survive these anti-democratic threats, or will government cave to the regressive, racist elements that seek to return America to some ill-gotten golden age? Chris Banker Drowns reports. The January 6th Capitol riot was immediately met with condemnation from almost all political quarters, and lawmakers vowed to root out its perpetrators. As the congressional inquiry now drags on, political memories have faded somewhat, with attention diverted to inflation concerns or the ever-present coronavirus. But the far right has suffered no such amnesia, with many still using last year's riot as a compelling pitch point to raise money. Leisha Brooks, chief of staff at the Southern Poverty Law Center, testified before Congress in February last year to warn about various funding streams benefiting the militant far-right, including January 6th rioters. As we reflect on a tumultuous year, Brooks reminds us that those funding streams have not dried up. If anything, the far-right has diversified their income and is getting better at hiding it. They, in the past, raised money through charging dues and selling products and purchase of uniforms and that kind of thing. But it's not, it's not what's happening now. Our recent reporting from our, our Hate Watch colleagues shows that money is being traded and made and advanced through cryptocurrency in, in ways that we couldn't even imagine um, a couple of years ago. And hate groups and white nationalists kind of writ large continue to monetize their activities and make money through kind of selling live feeds or live streaming their events or going through crowdfunding sites like GoFundMe and all of that. Those are still very, very active. And as one becomes shut down, another, you know, reappears. 
I want to dig into this question of cryptocurrency because it's kind of become a major talking point in, in the news these days, uh, along with NFTs and other blockchain related technologies. I'm curious, how has the far right taken advantage of these largely unregulated financial spheres and what kinds of regulations could be required to ensure that the far right can't take advantage of that? Well, it's really interesting because they got into the whole cryptocurrency uh, long before um, the you know kind of mainstream did, and so they have a lot invested in that particular form of, of financial advantage. Our recommendations that we made in February kind of still stand. We really want to encourage our reporting requirements around any financial services, be, be, be it profit-making or non-profit-making or virtual currency or cryptocurrency. And otherwise, we, we really feel like there needs to be some mandatory finan- financial reporting to the U.S. government. Um, we need to better understand you know, who's using what and how they're using it. We also need to better understand what abuses are, are occurring. Cryptocurrency does not um, fall under the same financial regulations that um, U.S. currency does. If a large amount of money is being transferred that sets off something and there's some investigation into it, that doesn't happen with cryptocurrency at all. And so um, it, it feels like it's, it's here to stay. And we just really believe that it needs to be regulated. Sure. Turning to January 6th, it seems that many of those arrested since last year have used online fundraising to support their legal fees, some raising tens of thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. And this kind of fundraising, I think at first glance, seems innocuous, right? You know, just your fund, fundraising for lawyer fees or court fees. Are there problems with this kind of legal fundraising and should efforts be taken to curtail it? You know, I mean... <laughs> The Southern Poverty Law Center is, is, of course, you know, kind of trying to weigh balances and rights, right? Um, we certainly don't want to curtail one's rights or one's ability to be able to raise funds for, you know, kind of righteous causes. And so these platforms that allow people to raise funds are being um, abused by white nationalists and the like or other form, other extremists to to raise funds, as you say, for their for instance, for their legal fees or for their their travel. Our research found that lots of folks who participated in the insurrection raised money on these sites to get there. Again, if we had regulation looking into kind of who was using um, what platform, what device to raise money and for what purpose, then we could we could do something about it. But the Southern Poverty Law Center doesn't certainly uh, advocate to 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 take down all these sites and 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 make it impossible for people to raise to raise money. I mean, some good causes are benefited by these by these platforms. I we just believe that there needs to be um, more regulation. I mean, we just really need to look into who is abusing these platforms or these forums, um, not get rid of them entirely. The Congressional Committee investigating January 6th has set up what I think they're calling a green team to dig specifically into financial support uh, around the day's events, including by issuing subpoenas for records from J.P. Morgan and, and hiring staff with financial expertise. Do we have a sense of what they know so far and what do you expect them to uncover? 
No, the select committee has been pretty kind of tight and, and rightfully so with the information that they have, they have gathered. They have reached out to the Southern Poverty Law Center and some of our partners. We are uh, continue to provide them with any information we have that can be helpful, but we haven't seen any of the results of their, of their investigation to date. It, it's hard to say. I mean, it, it's likely that funds were transferred in more traditional ways through traditional banking. And so because we have regulations in place that allow for the release of that information, it'll be helpful. But I have no idea what what will be produced. It seems like in 2021, the conservative hysteria around big tech and, and censorship has remained at a fever pitch. And there have been a lot of efforts to launch you know, allegedly conservative-friendly sites, uh, Jason Miller's Getter, we have Trump's Truth Social. Mm-hmm. How do these sites benefit the fundraising landscape for the far right? And what tools exist to mitigate those benefits? Mm-hmm. Um, well, anything that's, that continues to be associated with Trump, you know, continues to have some legs. Um, it'll likely continue to grow more militant and uh, violent as 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 we um, as we continue to kind of just face down this, these, these extremists and that they become more decentralized in that the new platforms will enable, um, more people to become engaged in, in radicalized by the rhetoric that's already out there. So again, it goes back to the, the recommendation that government should have mandatory reporting by technology service providers to document abuse, abuse of, of, of certain systems, right. Or certain platforms. Um, let me go back to your, your earlier question sure. about the proliferation of cryptocurrency. SPLC identified and compiled nearly 600 cryptocurrency addresses um, associated with white supremacists and other prominent far right extremists and found tens of millions of dollars worth of value embedded in the movement. The influx of wealth has radically reshaped the far right. It has helped to set off a stage for for the many problems we're facing today with respect to extremism. Bitcoin is big, but some white supremacists have moved on and moved their currency, their cryptocurrency to Monero. That's a that's a newer um, type of cryptocurrency and it's harder to track. Um, So we are just trying to keep up with where they're going with this. Extremists have amassed cryptocurrency wealth because they bought into crypto early. And they're very good at using this technology to hide their money and avoid the scrutiny of law enforcement. That's why, again, this, this recommendation around kind of research and mandatory reporting is so important. Lastly, you know, it seems like the future is getting particularly difficult to anticipate. And maybe it's just covid but we do have elections coming up next year. And I'm, I'm curious, do you feel like the, the progressive left under Biden is as willing to put up a fight as they were under Trump and, and combat what is still clearly a resurgent far right? I believe so. I mean, I, I, I see from the left and I see from, um, you know, the Democratic Party that there still continues to be interest. And we see that through the select committee, right, that they that we have not given up on um, the importance of doing the investigation and presenting the facts to the American people. So I believe that Janu- the January 6th insurrection really served to show us that the threat to democracy is real. And I don't think that we've seen anything 
to counter that since then. In fact, I think that some of the things that have happened have, have served to strengthen our understanding and appreciation of the great threat to uh, our democracy that, that now exists. I believe that the progressive left understands that. I think that we remain splintered with respect to what, <laughs> what, to, what to address first. But the Southern Poverty Law Center believes if we don't work to strengthen and, and save our democracy or protect our democracy, all of the other will not matter. That's Leisha Brooks, Chief of Staff at the Southern Poverty Law Center. You can hear more about SPLC's work by listening to their podcast, Sounds Like Hate. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bangert Drowns. As we approach the anniversary of the January 6th attack on the Capitol, members of Congress are preparing to mark the event with a prayer vigil, a panel discussion with historians, and an opportunity for reflection from lawmakers who witnessed the attack. But if Representative Cory Bush of Missouri has a say, that commemoration would include passing House Resolution 25 that would investigate and ultimately expel any members of Congress involved in the attack. She introduced the bill just days after the attack, and last February she delivered a powerful speech to explain why this kind of accountability on the part of Congress must be taken on. This is Congresswoman Cori Bush. Madam Speaker, St. Louis and I rise to reflect on how our office experienced the white supremacist attack on our nation's capital on January the 6th. Everybody ex- is, everybody's experiences are different and everybody's experiences must be validated. Everybody's experiences. I remember sitting up in the gallery listening to floor speeches, knowing that there was supposed to be a protest happening outside, seeing people outside, and thinking that this was just part of the day until something happened. And I just just felt the need to stand up and walk out I walked out and I walked over to the, I went to the steps. I went down a flight and I went to the steps and I went to look to see what's happening outside. And I saw the, t- the tip top of flags. And then I saw more of the flags and I could read words. And then after I could read words, I could see people. And then I realized that people were approaching. So I hopped on the nearest elevator and left and made it back to my office safely. And when we came back into our office, we walked in and we started to see on our, on our televisions people breaching doors. And I remember thinking, is this actually what's happening? The more I watched, and people were calling this a protest, let me say this, that was not a protest. I've been to hundreds of protests in my life. 
I've co-organized, co-led, led and organized protest, not only in Ferguson, Missouri, alongside the amazing Ferguson front line that most people don't even acknowledge. They don't even know their names. They don't even know who died. They don't even acknowledge the amazing people that put their lives and livelihoods on the line for our safety, believing that black lives matter because they actually do. And we shouldn't have to say it. It should just be true. But it's not evident in our society when we have to continue to say, my life matters. And then they hit us with things like this. And so I remember sitting in the office with my team and just thinking to myself, I feel like I'm back at this very minute. I feel like I'm back. I feel like this was one of the days out there on the streets when the white supremacists would show up and start shooting at us. This is one of the days when the police would ambush us from behind, from behind trees and from behind buildings and all of a sudden now we're on the ground being brutalized. It felt like one of those days. And I just remember taking a second thinking, if they touch these doors, if they hit these doors, the way they hit that door, if they hit these doors and come anywhere near my staff, and I'm just gonna be real honest about it. My thought process was, we banging to the end. I'm not letting them take out my people and you're not taking me out. We've come too far. So, Madam Speaker, St. Louis and I rise with a message for our Republican colleagues. On January 6th, I thought about January 3rd and I thought about how we all raised our right hands up and took an oath each and every one of us on this very floor, we swore that we would support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Even though that Constitution wasn't written for people who look like me, even that Constitution wasn't written by people who look like me, and even though that Constitution cemented an unjust nation for people like me. My team and I got to work and we unveiled legislation to investigate and expel those who were responsible for inciting this attack so that we could defend it because we have a duty to fight for a more perfect union because we cannot stand up to white supremacy in this, because if we cannot stand up to white supremacy in this moment as representatives, then why did you run for office in the first place? No matter what district you represent, no matter where you live, no matter Democrat or Republican, you represent a district that is on average about 700,000 people, meaning you have to resent those who love you, those who despise you, those who voted for you, those who swear they'll never cast a vote for you, people who talk like you and people don't, who don't look like you. Building better communities, building better lives, building a better society. It's not a Democratic or Republican issue. We can't build a better society if members are too scared to stand up and act to reject the white supremacist attack that happened right before our eyes. How can we trust that you will address the suffering that white supremacy causes on a day-to-day -day basis in the shadows if you can't even address the white supremacy that happens right in front of you in your house? Does your silence speak to your agreement is the question. 
In St. Louis, the COVID-19 pandemic is disproportionately hospitalizing and killing black and brown people. Well, I've lived that. We have people dying from gun violence, a crisis that stems from decades of economic disinvestment and disruption over, from an over-reliance on policing that, is, that this very chamber has continually voted to endorse. I've cried those tears. You don't know what that's like. So I ask you today, Take a moment to think about what it's like to live what we live through. If you cannot do what's right in the face of blatant, heinous, vile, white supremacist attack like the one we just saw, how will you do right by the black and brown people you represent who just want to know that our children will have safety, that our children will have life, and that they will have shelter because you represent us too. So on January 3rd, we stood together to swear our oath to office to the Constitution. We swore to defend it against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Well, it was attacked by a domestic enemy called white supremacy, and we must stand together now, today, to uphold that oath and hold every single person who helped incite it accountable. Thank you, and I yield back. Congresswoman Cori Bush of Missouri, speaking on the House floor February 5th, 2021. Several weeks ago, a group of Texas civil rights organizations filed a complaint with the U.S. Department of Justice over the state's migrant arrest operation. The complaint says the program is rife with civil rights violations and should be investigated for its failure to comply with Title VI of the Civil Rights Act and that all federal funding to the program should be terminated. Sue Goodwin has more. The program is known as Operation Lone Star. It is a border security program launched by Texas Governor Greg Abbott in March of last year. And as the complaint lays out, the intent is to deter migration and to punish migrants for crossing into the United States. But federal law prohibits state officials from enforcing federal immigration laws so Operation Lone Star has a way around that, and that is to target suspected migrants for arrest, jailing, and criminal prosecution by state and local law enforcement for the Texas State Misdemeanor Offense of Criminal Trespass. The complaint was filed by the ACLU of Texas along with nine partner organizations. Kate Huddleston is staff attorney with the ACLU of Texas, and she explains why a DOJ Title VI investigation is necessary. Sure. Title VI bars discrimination on the basis of race or national origin um, by state and local agencies that receive federal funding. So by creating and implementing uh, the Operation Lone Star Trespass Arrest Program, uh, Texas is discriminating against black and brown migrants in violation of Title VI. And so what Texas is doing uh, is deliberately singling out um, these people for criminal arrest and prosecution under the guise of state criminal trespass law, but really the goal is to target them for punishment based on uh, their immigration status. And so using state criminal law, the state has 
created this system that's really state immigration enforcement um, targeting black and brown individuals at the border. As evidence of the discriminatory nature of Operation Lone Star and its trespass arrest program, one obvious indication is the program's outcome. As detailed in the Title VI complaint, analysis of trespass arrest affidavits under the program reveals acute racial disparities. Nearly all of those arrested to date are Latinx or Black, but the complaint goes further than to just cite arrest outcomes. It details how those affidavits show evidence of racial profiling and biased policing by demonstrating that state and local agencies deliberately target people for arrest based on perceived race and national origin. It also demonstrates how in many cases the arrests lacked probable cause. In many instances, for example, law enforcement actually directed those arrested to a particular place or otherwise gave them the impression they had permission to be on the property, only then to arrest them for trespassing. Kate Huddleston offers one illustration of how that works. So one example I particularly would say is a Latino Venezuelan migrant who was arrested for trespass and he was jailed for 63 days until his charges were finally dismissed. Um, and what happened to him is law enforcement motioned him through an open gate. And so we uh, cite his affidavit in the complaint, um, and he saw people in uniform standing by a gate, and they gestured him through. And then when he crossed through, he was arrested for being on private property for trespass. So if all that is not bad enough, there is also what happens after the arrests are made. The complaint describes how once individuals are arrested under the Operation Lone Star Trespass Program, they are channeled into a criminal system that is entirely separate and distinct from the ordinary legal process and pretrial detention system for state misdemeanor charges. And as the complaint describes, this separate system is riddled with systemic violations of individual rights. So the separate criminal system for migrants is rife with civil rights abuses. One of them is failure to timely appoint attorneys. So people have waited for weeks or months to get attorneys. Another is uh, failure to timely file charges. In Texas, um, charges have to be filed within 15 or 30 days, and in many cases, people have waited long beyond that, and they're not getting into court, so they can't challenge it, uh, challenge that because the charges haven't been filed. Um, so people are ending up languishing in jail for weeks or months, and in 70% of cases, uh, charges are ultimately dismissed. So that's people waiting in jail uh, for weeks or months. For example, the Venezuelan uh, migrant who I spoke about who was jailed for 63 days on charges that were eventually dropped. As to what happens next, Kate Huddleston says the complaint has provided more than enough information to trigger an investigation into the discriminatory practices and civil rights violations being carried out under Operation Lone Star. But as the complaint points out, and Kate Huddleston explains, the concerns about Operation Lone Star are far bigger than that. 
So I think the other important point is um, this complaint is being filed in an atmosphere of rising anti-immigrant hate in Texas that is fueled by state and local politicians and that the migrant arrest program both draws on and furthers. So state and local politicians have made uh, racist, xenophobic statements in support of the migrant arrest program, and the migrant arrest program is heightening, uh, contributing to an atmosphere with the potential for violence in South Texas, particularly in one county that we describe in the complaint, Kinney County. And in Kinney County, the uh, local law enforcement has sought to partner with vigilante groups, and um, it has also sought to hire uh, wartime contractors from Iraq and Afghanistan uh, to essentially uh, capture migrants near the border. And so we're very concerned not only about uh, Texas's program on its own terms, but also about the potential uh, for violence in South Texas um, and see the investigation of the program as hugely necessary, not only uh, for the civil rights violations that it is causing, but for the ways in which it is contributing to this atmosphere of white supremacist hate. Kate Huddleston is staff attorney with the ACLU of Texas to see a copy of their federal discrimination complaint against Operation Lone Star they filed to the Department of Justice along with nine partner organizations. Visit ACLUTX.org. From Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin. Twenty twenty two may mark new beginnings for many, but for immigration advocates it only marks a continuation of Trump era policies. Though the Biden administration set out lofty goals, a year in the hallmarks of our immigration system still remain. Whether that be ICE detention or the turning away of asylum seekers. But despite setbacks, advocates, artists, and everyday people continue to share their experiences and resist. Reporter Amara Evering has more. Just only a couple miles away from the White House, in D.C.'s Columbia Heights neighborhood, the youth group Paso Nuevo at Gala Hispanic Theater put on their end-of-the-year show, Triescos de una Mujer Emigrante, or The Risks of an Immigrant Woman. The play was about a young girl's odyssey to the U.S., where she crosses a desert, experiences endless abuse at the hands of men, and pursues a dream that at times feels extremely far away. After the show, I spoke to the director of this program, Francisca Tapia, and asked her why she chose something so heavy for these young people to perform. And she told me that they were the ones who wrote it. They wrote a lot of different scripts, a basis of scripts, and we chose it together. But this one was very strong. They took over the theater. Yeah. All the house was run by them. They were in stage managing, house management, lights, sound, music, acting. So uh, it was very important for us. 
And this play wasn't necessarily fiction. It sometimes reflected the real experiences of the young actors who told this story on stage, walking the line between performance and a form of expression. They came here to tell their own story. I told myself, like, they've lived so much. They, they've even, some of them have crossed the desert. So, so if they lived there, why wouldn't I speak about it? It's, it's harsh, it's strong, but it's the truth. It was through this play that these young actors were able to reevaluate their own experiences. Your resilience is gonna come out when you think of the same experiences that you had in different ways. In the play, we trace the teenager's exodus from her country as she journeys towards the U.S., facing sexual violence, barely making it through a desert, and doing so with little resources at all. At the end of the play, we see a culmination of these experiences expressed on stage in this monologue. Lamento que tengan que presenciar este espectáculo, pero ya estoy cansada de todos los abusos que he recibido por ser mujer. Cansada de fingir ser alguien que no soy. To Francisca Tapia, who watched this monologue from the sidelines, she felt like the story of the main character was also partially the story of the young actress who played her part. When she's speaking at the end, and she's like saying that she's lived this life, that she doesn't want to hide anymore, I feel that that was a process for the girl that did it. She had traveled through the desert. She, she comes from El Salvador. And we did not speak specifically about like what was truth or lie or like just imagination. But at a certain point, you realize that in different ways, she has lived all of that violence. But this wasn't just about the connection between one actress and the story. It was something that resonated with many of the young performers. A lot of them connect to that violence too. Like they've lived it. And, and it's good that we can like reflect on it. And we connected the whole group. Like we spoke these last days, like what is the play about? What are we, what are we telling? What, are, what is the story we're telling? Though the takeaway from this play is always up to interpretation, it does shed a very real light on the major risks of immigration for women who often face increased health issues, sexual violence, trafficking, and exploitation, especially in places like overcrowded encampments. When abuse does occur, migrant women often lack resources and support systems. Though some of the performers haven't experienced this themselves, it does reach a broader narrative that may even relate to the stories of their parents. The parents are very proud and they are happy that the students are reflecting on not maybe their own stories also because some of them were born in America, in the United States, but their parents made the trip or come from Central America. So they feel that their kids now understand more their experience, and that is beautiful. That was Francisca Tapia, the program director of Paso Nuevo at Gala Hispanic Theater. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Amara Evering.
That was an original song from the Paso Nuevo youth group at Gala Theater, performed during the play The Risks of an Immigrant Woman. History was made in Chile last month when voters elected a young, leftist, former student protest leader as president. Gabriel Boric represents a repudiation of neoliberal policy and authoritarian politics in a country whose recent history is defined by both. But can he deliver on lofty expectations amid a rewriting of Chile's constitution? Reporter Chris Banker Drowns has more. Chile has been dominated by free market orthodoxy since dictator Augusto Pinochet seized power in 1973 and oversaw the writing of a new constitution that constrained democratic choice. Attempts to reform that constitution have been incremental and, for much of the Chilean population, not meaningful enough. Years of demonstrations against rampant social inequality eventually prompted Chile's legislature to establish a process to write a new constitution. As that process launched, Chile's political center continued to deteriorate, and a first round of votes for president saw all the formerly dominant centrist candidates demolished last year by new faces promising bold change. On the right, José Antonio Cast represented a return to Pinochet-era politics and was the only candidate to oppose the new constitutional process. On the left, protest leader Gabriel Boric campaigned as a defender of the new process and in support of social democratic policy. David Duwalde, in December, traveled to Chile to observe the second round of elections as an official representative of the Democratic Socialists of America. Duwalde explains how Boric swept to victory. Turnout surged to almost 56% in the second round. The Constitution favors kind of these, this system that has lower turnouts where it's impossible to make certain changes. And so one of the things there, you know, in the constitutional process that they're discussing now, which New York Times reported on, is like dealing with environmental and climate justice, things that will make it easier for Chileans to actually have a majoritarian government. And so like our U.S. Constitution, the Chilean Pinochet Constitution basically just set it up so there'd be so many roadblocks to changing the status quo that neoliberalism had established, which is why they were able to tweak and do some government programs, but they've been very hesitant to like actually take on uh, the government. And like when I was when I was a kid, I remember that Pinochet actually, it's important to remember this, like was able to like stay as commander in chief. <laughs> That's not the case anymore. But like whereas in the U.S., like the president is the commander in chief, whereas in Chile for a time, they still elected head of state. But Pinochet made, retained total control of the military and kind of moving away and giving more civilian control would be kind of goals. Uh, that this government uh, would seek. This this new constitutional process that you referenced is, it seems to be the result of years of demonstrations um, against neoliberal inequality, you know, student protests in 2006, 2011, and in 2019 most recently, which uh, had demonstrations far beyond just student elements. Can you take some time to talk about the organization and effectiveness of these demonstrations and how they ultimately prompted the new constitutional process? 
So I think there's important to look at a couple of different factors that happen. And like, as you, as you know, that there isn't, and I remember Frances Fox Piven, the famous sociologist, uh, kind of noting this. She's like, in the United States, like we kind of think of like the civil rights movement now in history, we're like, oh, it's like, it was this linear line of increasing escalation. She's like, no, it's like, you have the Montgomery boycott, then like nothing happens. Then you have the March on Washington, then like things are kind of, nothing happens. Then you have uh, the Civil Rights Act passes, you know? So you have like these series of lulls. And I think that's what you see in Chile where you have building, but you have building resentment and each kind of uh, uprising and mobilization has a unique character, but it's kind of building on the last. And so what you also see when I think is critical and is that there's really a collapse of on both sides of the traditional parties uh, and their bases of support. And I think they've, they're collapsing because they couldn't answer the bases needs to wanting to change society. And I think these movements kind of reflected the initial iterations of people feeling that government and their elected officials weren't meeting. So you have these student movements that are really reflect kind of a microcosm of like the rebellion against neoliberalization, whereas Chile used to have very good public universities, um, Catholic universities, people really could get a decent education for free. Lots of people still went to private school who were elite, but there was still an opportunity to get a good education for free from the state. And that has basically disappeared. And so people were taking on all these debts. And like, like the United States, you have this huge debtor society. And I think people are working incredibly hard and unable to see any way out. And on the right, they do have some social movements too. And one thing people talk about is like on the, the counterweight to like the student reform, there also are right-wing anti-student reform movements, especially strong with like a growing evangelical movement in Chile, like learning from the United States about <laughs> evangelicals go to the school wards, they know how to build a base. So you have these two kind of sides where there are dynamism and that reflects why Jose Antonio Cast and Gabriel Boric did the best because they did have dynamic actual people on the ground and the others just collapsed. And I think that's a symbol of like people's disenchantment with neoliberalism. Unfortunately, as we know, that can go two ways. It can go where we hope it's going right now, which is towards a progressive direction, a movement towards at least a social democratic with a small s, small d effort, or it can go towards fascism, which you see in Brazil, you know, where people, hopefully Bolsonaro will lose, but people also in these crises also can adopt more authoritarian views to create peace, you know, which is quote unquote peace and stability if they don't see that being answered by neoliberalism. So neoliberalism itself is kind of, you can see by the collapse of those parties and who has come up has been like discredited, but which side wins out, I think is, is leaning towards the left, but it's still to be written. So I want to turn to, to Gabriel Borch himself now. You know, he was a, a protest leader as a student and as a politician helped craft the agreement to generate uh, this new constitution. And, and I think he's, he's clearly somebody that embodies a lot of the aspirations of the Chilean left, um, you know, campaigning on taxing the rich, expanding public sector, uh, tackling climate change. But he, he does face obstacles, um, including a Senate that includes a lot of right wing politicians. What tools does Boric have, both institutionally and politically, to achieve left goals despite this conservative opposition? Yeah. So Gabriel Boric faces an evenly divided Senate and a Congress that 
technically is majority center left, but includes lots of representatives who come from these new formations of the cent- of the center, center right, like I was discussing uh, earlier from the People's Party, which is uh, the kind of the Andrew Yang of Chile's uh, organization. And so it's going to be very hard for him to pass legislation, not only because of the Chilean system, which precludes social change, but just because of the makeup of the Constitution. But the Chilean uh, system is a, is a strong presidency where he has a lot of authority to do things by decree. And so some things he can do, for example, that there's some hope is as, as there's a Chile has an increased over the past few years immigration. You used to not get a lot of immigrants, but as it's become a wealthier country and other countries have had more crisis, there's a huge Venezuelan and Haitian population. So providing some more formal status for these, uh, especially undocumented immigrants and trying to tamper down the anti-immigrant backlash that Jose Antonio Cast was trying to use to win would actually be a huge gain. But I think that there is some sense that his main priority is to preserve the constitutional process and that if he does that, he actually may have to either step down or run again in a few years because the constitution could call for a new election. And so I think there, his major duty is potentially could just be a very critical caretaker president to oversee the constitutional process. Sure. Do you have any comments on on the strength of the Chilean right and, and maybe its alignment with fascism? Because, you know, I think there were a lot of concerns that Antonio, Jose Antonio Cast was flirting with fascism, right? His, his father was revealed to be a, a card-carrying Nazi, but he's also yeah. been promoting this sort of racist and xenophobic positions. Is, is, is the Chilean right a threat in the sense, in the same way that we imagine the U.S. right to be a fascist threat? So what was an interesting almost mirror of what happened over 30 years ago was the Bordic won by about 55 to 45%. And when Chile voted to remove Pinochet from power, there was a plebiscite in 1988, um, it was about 58, 42%. So there seems to be a 40% base for kind of Pinochet-type politics in Chile. So not a majority, but a not necessarily disappearing uh, appeal towards authoritarianism. And I think it's actually more authoritarian than fascist. And I think that why you see this is that both, uh, Cass did do some right-wing playbook stuff like the anti-immigrant, where he, where Trump, they had a great line, they're like, Trump had a wall, Cast had a ditch. So Cast was proposing his scheme was like, we're going to dig a huge ditch in the Chilean desert so the immigrants will just fall in and they can't come. But he didn't go full on neo-fascist. Like, and he, for example, around COVID, took COVID very seriously. Chile, Chile has a very, doesn't have the same kind of anti-COVID backlash that we're used to. And he also... Importantly, and I think, and I'm not saying he did this out of the goodness of his heart, but he recognized the results right away. There was a push by some kind of, what would say, we're cooling to like crowd boy type activists who were like, let's try to discredit the results. And he just wouldn't do that. And I, so I don't think that the ruling class has gotten there yet. And it really will depend on what happens 
with how Boric governs, who he appoints as like the finance minister. So I think their real strength is like capital flight, moving money out of the country, you know, not capital strikes, not just shutting down enterprises until the government gives in. Those are kind of more the traditional mechanisms that the ruling class and capitalists will use. I don't think they're ready to embrace a kind of fascism yet for for the reasons I stated earlier that I just don't think they're they're there and they don't have the same kind of social based support. So I think it's going to be a more authoritarian response, both like undemocratic actions by capital and pushes for like, you know, more police power and stuff, but not the full fake news full like anti-vaccination kind of attitude we've, we've seen in Brazil and the United States. That's David Dualde, member of the International Committee of the Democratic Socialists of America. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Spangert-Drowns. Michael Thompson is a former tech exec at a major Fortune 50 corporation with 30 years of experience. He has now launched his own internet platform, which insults the prevailing black cultural norm and at the same time has managed to threaten the white corporate tech industry. His creation is called Our Black Truth. Well, um, Our Black Truth has been well received by the black community. As a whole, we've had a few within our community that think that we may be a little restrictive in that we do not allow women to be called out of their name. We don't allow men to post videos of them with golds in their mouth, pants sagging, and all these other crazy things. Um, You know, some people have a problem with that. But for those that do, we really can't do anything for them. But our goal is to reach out to those that's tired of it and those that actually want to make a difference, a change, and to actually use these platforms to, again, uplift our people. So it's been well received by 99% of the people out here. Um, but then you always have that one little more minority that really doesn't care for it. And then from a perspective of globally, when you talk about other nationalities and groups. Um, we've seen a lot of people that are, we'll just, we'll just call it what it is, white, that have supported us. But then we've had quite a few that were totally against what we are doing because our black truth, again, is all about the truth of who we are and doing things to benefit us. And then you have some of those people that just don't care for that. They don't want to see us unify like that. You're not surprised that some white people are angry at you, are you? Absolutely not. Um, It it really didn't surprise me at all. Um, The thing that surprised me is that it took as long as it did for them to come out of the woodwork. But when they did, they came with a fury. And, um, you know, we've been fighting this thing off continuously even with some of the major corporations run by them trying to keep us off balance so that we won't be successful. But needless to say, we're not going to let that happen. 
What's so dangerous about our Black Truths apps? What do they do? Okay. Well, the first thing is today social media is one of the most influential tools known to man when it comes to communication. And if you do not own your own communications, you own nothing. That's been our problem. We've been playing catch up and we don't own anything. All these social media platforms out here, they're geared to destroying us period. And if you look around, they promote the buffoonery. They promote the ignorance. They promote the misinformation. But the problem that they have with us is that we will not promote this misinformation. We will not tolerate the buffoonery and all the other negative stereotypes that they want the world to see of us. We're allowing our people to tell our own story, not just in a diaspora, but on the continent as well. Our goal is to unify and to bring together the power of our people globally and not fall for this divide and conquer type of mentality. And they saw that this has potential because we actually took the oldest living survivors of Black Wall Street to Ghana to meet the president, kings, chiefs, and a lot of others. And we were so well received. It was a great success to see the diaspora come together with the continent. And they need to see more of this. And that's what our goal is, is to, again, bring us all together, bring us all full circle and to kind of bridge that gap um, for lack of a better term. So, um, you know, so that's one of the things that's really threatening to other people. And then we think about the intellectual capital that we have as a people. If we bring all this to bear in one place where we can communicate and share this, that is a threat because there's so much knowledge and power within our people but we have no way to communicate because we own none of the communications channels. And now we do with our black truth. We've taken them to court. We complain about it and all that kind of stuff, but nothing changes. And my attitude personally is stop asking, stop begging, let them do what they do. Build your own. Who are we to tell them what to do with their platform? If you don't like it, you build your own. That's the school of thought that I subscribe to because we have that capability and nothing will change again until the people at the top look like you understand your culture and those kinds of things. So when you talk about our black truth, when we censor users, our censorship is totally different because it's based on our understanding of life of the world and how we've been treated. So you can say things on our black truth that will get kicked, that will get you kicked off of Facebook, although it's the absolute truth. And even if it's not spewing hate, because we don't participate in that, but even something is not spewing hate, it's just the truth. You still get rejected on these other platforms. And then this truth is lost and we just can't allow that. And again, that's why our black truth, was built and designed so that we can take control of this again. Are you a content provider or a platform? Well, we're actually both. We're a 
platform that allows people to, again, communicate, share information and all those things. But we also create content that um, has historical value that actually helps to educate our people. Is there a danger or a worry on the part of folks like Google and Facebook that our black truth might uh, preach a content that has been found over and over and over again by the federal government to be fraudulent, which is black identity extremism? Yeah, well, the thing is, when it comes to black identity extremism, those are the kind of things that we pay very close attention to um, because there's always that outside chance you go and get these fringe groups. And they are um, treated with the same rules and have to follow the same rules that everyone else has to follow. So when people come with misinformation, we don't care if they're black, white, or whatever, we're going to shut it down. That's the key right there. Um, we're not going to allow our own people to get into this and destroy this. We need the truth from a historical perspective, from a intellectual perspective. We need the truth and we need to get the information out there and we need that unification. But all the fringe craziness that goes on, we're going to do our very best to make sure that it doesn't infiltrate the platform and affect the masses. Will some of this garbage get in? Yes, it will. It's, it's impossible to filter everything, but we will put forth all the effort humanly possible to make sure that this does not happen. And that location is ourblacktruth.com, ourblacktruth.com. Yes, actually you can go to ourblacktruth.com and from there, you can reach out to the social media platform and the video platform. And let me just make sure I'm clear. Our Black Truth is more than just a social media platform. We have one side that's comparable to Facebook in its functionality, performance, etc. Then we have a second platform that's like YouTube, where you can go watch and research videos. So um, that's how you would access both right now until we get the situation with Google Play resolved. And uh, you can also find both apps on the Apple um, App Store. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. Hey, thank you so much. Michael Thompson is president of a new social media platform, Our Black Truth. And that's our show for today. Monday Morning QB is produced by Chris Banker Drowns, Amara Evering, and Sue Goodwin. I'm Askia Muhammad. Thank you for listening and thanks for contributing to WPFW Washington and to WBAI New York. Music